tough act to follow. <laughs> um, I will do my best. Um, I have a, a few confessions to make. Um, first of all, I am not a musician, so I have a very low-tech presentation. I, I did used to play the drums in a series of very bad garage bands when I was in high school, doing covers of Metallica and Aerosmith. Harry will probably disagree with me, but I don't think it was very Buddhist. Um, and the, and the other confession I have to make is that I am a, uh, a recently minted PhD, so my paper is somewhat academic, but I'll do my best to be as lively and engaging as science, uh, <laughs> although I don't know if I'll be able to. <laughs> um, as I said, my, my academic training is in Buddhist studies, but it comes from two different places. On the one hand, uh, it comes in historical studies. Um, I find the history to be very, very profound and very, very important. I think that it's through studying history that we can learn where we've come from, and it's only through really knowing where we've come from that we can understand where we are and hopefully make uh, good choices for where we can go in the future. Um, I, I deeply appreciate um, the presentation that came before me because it gave some excellent history of uh, Shin Buddhist music. Um, my other interest in Buddhist studies, though, is ritual studies. Um, I think that ritual is, in some ways, more important than doctrine or belief. I think that what we do as Buddhists, what we do, the chanting, the singing, the practice, is much more important than what we claim to believe or think we believe. It's what we do that defines us as Buddhists. And so it's from those two places that I began my interest in Shin Buddhist studies, and particularly in American Shin Buddhism. Um, American Shin Buddhism is not talked about very much in the academy. Um, in the academic study of Buddhism, when academics get together and talk about American Buddhism um, and talk about American Shin Buddhism at all, they either say, well, it's just this Japanese-American thing, it's not real American Buddhism. Or, oddly enough, they'll often say that American Shin Buddhism is incredibly westernized, it's incredibly Christianized, it's Protestantized. Um, which, those two things always struck me as uh, somewhat contradictory and paradoxical. Um, which brings us to the Shin Gathas. Um, the Gathas, the American English language Gathas that we sing every Sunday in temples across this country, um, when, uh, when I first came to Shin Buddhism, and the first time I heard these gathas, I remember having this experience and thinking, wow, these are, these are Christian hymns. <laughs> I, was sort of just, I was sort of turned off by them, but I think it's because of my own ego and my own uh, acknowledgement that I can't sing. <laughs> but perhaps I'm, I'm just being too embarrassed and have too much of my ego there. Um, but at the same time, realizing that, that these gathas are an important part of American Shin Buddhist history, I really wanted to learn more, and that's where this study came from, was finding out where these, Shin, uh, where these gathas came from, why they were written, who wrote them, um, and really learning about the history of American Shin Buddhism. Um, so, that's where this paper comes from. Um, So, <laughs> I've skipped over my entire introduction. So, this paper is about the, um, the current American Shin Gathas, and what I wanted to focus on mostly was the Gathas that you can find in the big purple book, the uh, Shin Buddhist service book that most temples use, or some temples use, at any rate. 
Um, and I wanted to focus on that book mostly just because of uh, the time constraints of this paper. I don't want to go to sleep. Um, now, the current service book was completed in 1994 by the Department of Education of the BCA, and it was begun in 1989 by an ad hoc music committee. And it's interesting, I, I just recently found out about the, um, the Center for British Education that did their workshop last week uh, at the Jodo Shinshu Center in Berkeley. And so I think there's a new interest in Shinbu's uh, music, which is quite exciting. Um, the result of the 94 Department of Education of the BCA was a book that includes not only English language gathas, but also all the major sutras and a selection of Shinran Wasam um, to be chanted in Japanese, complete with Roman, uh, Romanized readings and chanting instructions. The service book also has details of temple services, Utsudan practice, as well as proper Buddhist etiquette, Buddhist <coughs> ceremonies and services. And so it's really not just a hymnal, but it's an instructional book on how to practice uh, Shin Buddhism. Um, in the service book, there's a total of 47 gathas. Um, of these, 28 are in English and 19 in Japanese. But this simple division into language is uh, deceptive. Several of the English language gathas are, in fact, translations of Japanese texts, such as Shinran's dedication. Um, and the musical accompaniment was often written separately, in most cases, for the composition of the service book itself. I think this is an interesting part of the gathas, is that several of the, the words in the music were not written at the same time, which to me suggests that we can take some of the lyrics from these gathas and set them to different music, or have new music and write new gathas for them. Um, now, it will be easy to view the gathas as part of the process of cultural adaptation, to believe that Japanese immigrants' children tended to need more Western or American modes of practice, and that Shin Buddhist temples took on the look and feel and ritual practices of mainstream Protestant American culture. But a closer look at the development of the gathas reveals a much more complex history, and it's a history that goes all the way back to Japan. Um, during the Meiji period, the, uh, Japan was at a time of rapid modernization, and the westernization of Japanese culture was the height. <clears throat> the Honganji, of course, was not immune to these influences. In 1877, for example, the institution had already adopted western-style music um, and western education, western educational institutions, as well as Sunday schools for young Buddhist members at its temple. Um, when I learned about Sunday schools in Kyoto, in the 18, late 1800s, that struck me as very interesting. Very often, um, I meet other scholars who will look at the American Sunday Dharma schools and say, oh, the Sunday Dharma schools are this new American thing that, that Shin Buddhists are doing. No, Shin Buddhists have been doing it for almost 200 years now, um, all the way back to Japan. So Sunday schools are, I think, a deeply important part of Shin Buddhism, um, which points directly to families and children. I think this is a very important part of Shin Buddhist practice. Um, in 1872, Hongaji sent a delegation of ministers to Europe to learn everything they could about Western music. Um, this desire for non-Japanese music led to the creation of the first service books, both for lay people and for ministers, in the 19th and early 20th centuries. Um, one of these was the Shinshu Seiten, which was published in 1912, and it included 26 songs set to Western-style music. Um, and of course, Japanese immigration was already in Hawaii and North America at the time, and gothas were being written here as well. 
The Rei Sonam, for example, was printed in Honolulu in 1917 and reprinted in Japan in 1926. So one of the interesting parts about this history is that American Shingathas that were written either in Hawaii or in North America were also being sent back to Japan. So it's not just simply this music that was created here for Americans, but it was also sent back to Japan. Um, 1924 is a very important year. This is the year that the Bade Mecham was published in Hawaii. This work contains over a hundred hymns and was composed by Shinkaku, Ernest, and Dorothy Hunt, two European-American converts to a growing Shinshu community on the islands. One of the Hunt's intentions in writing this book was to create a bridge among various Buddhist schools, an intention made explicitly clear in their following statement about the work. It is the fervent desire of the authors of this little volume that the heresy of separateness now prevailing among Buddhists of Honolulu may soon be abolished. They have endeavored, therefore, to keep, the, keep to the fundamental and ethical teaching, hoping that all English-speaking Buddhists, whatever their affiliation, may be able to use it. This statement suggests, among other things, the Hunt's understanding of Buddhism as a universal religion, which should not be divided into sectarian schools. This, combined with the largely Christian imagery of their hymns, is highly reminiscent of another turn-of-the-century white Buddhist sympathizer named Paul Kars. Um, before I get to Paul Kars, though, I want to mention that the Hunts were, uh, had many, many interesting hymns among them, uh, such you know, Christian-influenced hymns like Onward Buddhist Soldiers. There's <laughs> uh, also uh, Buddha Loves Me, This I Know version. <laughs> so the influence of the Christian hymns is very apparent. Um, but, you know, I think that they're still good songs. Buddha does love them. <laughs> now, Paul uh, Karras was a German-American philosopher, and in 1894, he wrote the Gospel of Buddha, um, and was deeply interested in spreading the Buddhist teachings, but his version of the Buddhist teachings, um, mostly as an antidote to whatever he thought was wrong with Christianity. Um, Karras' interpretation of Buddhism is one which is highly reminiscent of an abstract, monistic, Christianity, wherein the Buddha is seen in an almost one-to-one -one comparison to Jesus Christ, and Buddha nature or enlightenment can be seen as a universal principle akin to God. Um, however critical we may be of Karas' brand of Buddhism, it is nevertheless important to keep in mind that Karas' work was influential not only in America, but in Meiji, Japan. Uh, the Gospel of Buddha had been translated in 1895 by none other than Shakuso and D.T. Suzuki. Such Western influences were not only on limited Zen schools, but also had influence in the Honganji. In 1939, the Honganji published the Standard Buddhist Gathas and Services, Japanese and English, which included 57 English language Gathas, 51 of which were from the Hans Bade Mecca. So the Hans work in Hawaii had a direct influence on the Honganji in Japan. Despite the sometimes subtle and sometimes overt Christian imagery of Bade Mecca, the work is still highly influential in Shin communities on both sides of the Pacific throughout the 20th century. Uh, between the 1920s and 1989, when the current service book was published, um, several dozens, really, of smaller hymn books were <coughs> composed and compiled by different temples across the states. Um, and many of these drew on the Vade Mechum. And if you can find these in your temples, I'm sure that you will see that the authors of many of these hymns are the Hunts, um, as well as Paul Carr's. Um, so all of these hymns get collected into the current Shin, service, uh, Shin Buddhist service book. So I think we can see a history through these people, through the early part of the 20th century, that I don't think we should forget. 
Um, now, the work on the current service book that began in 89 started with a distribution of, a question, of questionnaires among DCA members, <clears throat> which provided valuable feedback on hymns and Gothism use at the time. In general, members found the imagery to be too Christian, um, and as a result, the committee set itself to the task of writing and composing new Gothas. The committee was, of course, aided by Jane and Mamura, along with Yumi Hojo and Kimi Hisatsune, Hisatsune, pardon me. Um, and they had already composed several English language gathas for children, which were widely used in American Sunday schools. Um, the gathas were very influential. I'm sorry, these gathas were very influential in the creation of the new service book. In contrast to the hymns of the Bade Mekum, the imagery and the feeling of the songs is decidedly more Buddhist. In addition to the input of Mrs. Memora, the music committee was also aided by Linda Castro and other. Um, prominent members of various Buddhist communities. Um, in particular, I think we should pay some deep gratitude to the Berkeley Buddhist Temple. Many of these folks had connections to the Berkeley Temple. Um, from, so, the Gathas in the current service book then are a mix of traditional Japanese songs, Shinran's songs, hymns composed by Shinkaku Hunt as well as Alcaris, and more contemporary songs written by both Japanese and European Americans. While the book is clearly intended for a Shin audience, it is also as diverse in flavor and in sentiment as the American Shinshu community it serves. It is not simply an Americanized version of a Japanese tradition, nor is an attempt to retain a purely Japanese character and serve only the Japanese community. Rather, it draws on the full heritage of the Shinshu experience in both Japan and America. What we can see from this very brief historical sketch of the Shin Buddhist service book is that the process of westernization was not simply from east to west. Rather, there was significant interplay between, on the one hand, Japanese Buddhists' desire to have western-style music and services in Japan, and on the other, American Buddhists' desire to create services that would attend to the needs of their congregations. The notion that English-language gathas were solely the product of American Buddhists, solely in response to the perceived need for more American or western-style services, or to cater to their English-speaking Nisei or Sansei Buddhists, may turn out to be far too simplistic a hypothesis to explain the complex ways in which these gothas were written. So the history of the service book tells a compelling and complex historical narrative of American Shin Buddhism. Even before Buddhism was well established in Hawaii, there was an interest within Buddhist communities to alter the way Buddhism was being practiced in Japan. This could be seen in the adoption of Sunday schools and the importing of Western-style music by the Honganji during the Meiji period. There's a tendency among a certain breed of scholar to label this as Western influence on the East. But the tendency in Orientalist labor scholarship to call any Western influence merely the work of Western imperialism is a bit problematic. The implication is that Asia is the ever-passive recipient of Western culture, the victim of outside forces, and it removes from Asia any free will of its own, or the ability of Asia to influence the West. The truth of the matter, of course, is that there was a conscious desire among the Japanese to learn about the West during the major reforms, and what's more, Japanese culture at that time was spreading to and influencing the West. On the other side of the Pacific, Shin Buddhists were bringing their cultural traditions with them from Japan and mingling them with the dominant cultures of the Americas. The Badai Mecham is an excellent case study in how white Westerners were active in the creation of a uniquely American pan-Buddhist Shin Buddhism which was then influenced by Japanese Americans. And while there is an assumption among some scholars that the Japanese Americans became more American as the result of the desire to fit in out of fear of racial repression before and during the Pacific War, 
The history of English language baptism services does not always bear this out. During the post-war period, there is evidence in the creation of service books that the community wanted to retain both its English language heritage and its Japanese heritage. So this messy and non-linear story then is just that. It's messy. It's not the easy historical narrative that the old Orientalist scholarship was so fond of painting. In its place, though, we have a more colorful history, one that can reveal the real historical motivators who have helped shape the course of Shinbuism in Japan as well as the West. Rather than focusing our attention on the charismatic leaders who always seem to capture the limelight, we can take note of lesser-known characters, particularly women, who to this day have direct and import have direct and important influence on the day-to-day -day religious lives of countless Shinbuists. Um, and I think this last point deserves much closer attention. Um, this past fall, the IBS and the Denver Buddhist Temple co-hosted a symposium on women in American Buddhism. And the issue of uh, women's monastic ordination was, of course, a big concern there, as, as well as uh, making sure women had more of an access to visible positions of power, whether it was becoming ministers or the heads of temples. But several participants noted that there, was, that there have always been ways to influence Buddhism or to be a positive role model more than simply taking on the role of a minister. For over a century now, women have been running the temples in a behind-the-scenes sort of way. When we look at the service book, we need to acknowledge that this hymnal, a hymnal in use every week in hundreds of temples across the continent, a hymnal that expresses the deep faith of the larger Shinshu community, this hymnal would not have been possible were it not for the tireless work of American Shin Buddhist women. And for this, we owe them deep gratitude. Finally, I would like to return to this question of practice. It is important to remember that the gathas of the service book are part of a larger ritual context. <clears throat> While practicing is something of a taboo subject in Shin doctrine, it is clear that these songs serve a vital and important part in the practical and religious lives of Sangha members in the BCA. It would seem obvious then that Shinshu scholars as well as ministers would have a vested interest in learning about the history of the gathas, <clears throat> their place within the tradition, and how their temple members receive them. But more importantly, I think we can look to the history of American Shinbuddhist Gathas and see them as a very important lesson. Um, we can see them as a source of inspiration. That these Gathas represent a way that the community has been able to reinvent itself and be innovative and creative throughout its long history. And we can use them as a positive role model and a positive lesson for the century to come. Thank you. <laughs> Not so much a question, I wonder if you could expand a bit on your comment about the non-linear uh, method by which Gatha's post-Pacific War were developed. Uh, I was particularly interested in, in how you came to that conclusion and, and the basis for it. Sure. Um, well, I think that part of that is that there's a tendency to, to see Buddhist history in the world as you know, Buddhism began in India and then it moved through Asia, eventually to Japan, and then came to the West. Um, but I think that when we look at the history of Buddhism, what we see is a lot more back and forth crossing. So that it's not just simply that Buddhism was lifted up out of Japan and then dropped here in America and then had no contact with Japan, but rather that there was crossing even after the war and even before the war of Japanese and, and other Buddhists coming across the Pacific and sharing their teachings. 
Um, so in, particularly before the war, you can see a lot of these hymns and these gathas being sent back to Japan, for example. So you can see some influence on the part of the way that we here in the West, we here in America, the way we practice Buddhism has an influence on the way that the, the Japanese are practicing Buddhism. I think most people tend to see it only happening the other way. Yes. Yes. Uh, I'm a priest and uh, actually, with Gatha, Gatha is a, a, a idol, it's a different religion in this country, I've been for a hundred years, and I always ask myself, the Gatha, after the Gatha came out of the Buddhist tradition, I'm always concerned, what, what does, uh, did it create? And in the same hand, what does they, do they destroy? Um, because, um, as you, maybe you learned about the history in here, the first person to transfer the garden, I say, uh, maybe cross garden in Japanese. After that, they said, he, as a wrote one good report about the difference between the so-called Christian culture and the Buddhist culture. Mm -hmm. A very famous paper, maybe you know this one. Um, but who and horizontal. Mm -hmm. That's an older, that's a Buddhist culture based on this horizontal status. Because you know, we, all Buddhists, basic standpoint is we don't want to kind of hierarchy kind of vertical relationship between the, the mighty gods themselves. We are always concerned about our equality. That all the Buddhist culture and Buddhist gods, Buddhist tradition or nature, are all based on this idea, equality. That's why you know, all the sounds of the, the first session are massively introduced. All the songs that they, I say, influence the people and spread to the, uh, this area so equal. But once we adopt the garden of Christian way of Christian music, the songs kind of a, but suited to the Christian, Christian type of church. All the sound go up to the high, and the people enjoy this kind of feeling, you know, mm -hmm. kind of love. <coughs> I think there are people enjoy that, that truth. But in the same hand, I'm always concerned about the so many things we lost. And we have to consider or something else. I'm sorry, I, my question is wrong. <laughs> so, but uh, I just wanted to, uh, I want to ask, you know, how do you feel this uh, idea of the history of the path from the horizontal? Um, well, I think I'm not sure if we necessarily lose anything. Um, I would be hesitant to say that English language or even Japanese language gothas that have the flavor of a Christian hymn necessarily replace a different kind of Buddhist practice that we should be doing. Um, that being said, I think that another important thing to remember, as you mentioned, is that people enjoy singing them. I think that's actually really important. <laughs> I think it's actually very important to be attentive to the fact that these hymns and these gathas have a deep import in a lot of people's lives. Um, and 
we should be respectful of that and find out what it is about them that the temple members like and what it is about them that the temple members don't like. Um, and, and even if we lose something like singing these hymns, like losing some other kind of less Christian kind of Buddhist practice, um, these hymns still have meaning in, in, in people's lives, and we should find out what that is. <laughs> um, and, and, and the other thing that I wanted to mention is that D.T. Suzuki is an important figure in Japanese-American religious history, um, but I, I would argue that he wasn't the first person to bring Buddhism to this country, uh, the farmers were. Um, Japanese immigrants came here at least 50 years before D.T. Suzuki did. Um, and one of the things they brought with them was not Christian-style gathas, but certainly they brought music, and certainly they brought chanting. Tita um, Suzuki was the first philosopher, which is important. Um, he certainly wasn't the first Japanese to come. <laughs> in, in my humble opinion. But thank you very much for the question. Sir, um, for your point about I think it was in this larger context of the Meiji period where Japan had gone through this long period of the dollar where it had been a relatively closed society. Um, and then, you know, the U.S. gunships come into Tokyo Bay and say, start trading with us or else. Um, and I think that there was this feeling of we need to learn about Western culture because we want to make sure that we're on the same playing field, on the same level. Um, and I think that there was an overall interest in learning about Western society and adopting those things as modern and more advanced and, and all of that kind of thing. Um, unfortunately, I don't know that much about Sunday schools in particular in Japan. Um, I've just heard mention of them in several places, so I'm not entirely sure the details of what went in and what went on and all of that. Um, but I also know that there was um, some power struggle between the Hongganji and uh, the Zen schools with uh, the Meiji Emperor <laughs> after 1868. Um, so that's a whole other long history. Probably. <laughs> uh, we all know when we hear these thoughts uh, Christian in their sense, um, and many of it is in the words that, the lyrics that were part of it, and in many cases where a lot of it, the, there's been remixes of these words. But in essence, some of it, some of the Christian quality that comes about because of the, the melody itself or something in the music itself, and have you had a chance to at least quantify or, or begin to understand what makes these gothas more Christian in their feeling than some some of the other the other gothas that are showing up in the in the new service. Um, uh, well, to be quite frank, I am a little hesitant to call them Christian, um, only because I have a, a personal academic interest in not confining religious feeling into these rigid hierarchies of this is Christian and this is Buddhist. I think that there's much more interplay and overlapping in those feelings. And um, the, the, the sort of backside of that question is, well, how do we know that Christian hymns aren't actually Buddhist? <laughs> I, mean, I don't know the history of Christian hymns. <laughs> so I, I wonder, you know, where is the influence really, which direction is it really going in? 
Um, that's you know, hypothetical. <laughs> so don't record that part. <laughs> um, yeah. Words, uh, a remix of words for Amazing Grace. Mm. Um, that makes it, that could put it to Buddhist context. But, yeah. And the, the lyric, the song, the melody from that is there's questions whether it actually is a Christian in origin or whether it's West African. So there's some interesting. Well, it's a white guy that wrote it. Right, but he was more slave shit. But the melody is. From the black slaves. Yeah, he was on the slave ship. Right, but it's the white guy that wrote it. Right, I know, but, uh, but I could see that there might be a connection to West African music. That's totally fascinating. So, my bottom line question is, have you had a chance to begin to evaluate whether there's something in the meter or in the quality of the music itself that has Buddhists begin to assume it's right? Unfortunately, I'm not. Most of my training is in sociology and anthropology and musicology, so I'm a little bit hampered in some places, but it's great to know that there's more questions. Having been a Christian many decades ago, the song that we would sing would be a jubilation. And I think that that was the defining point. When we when we sang it, we felt so jubilant. And I can remember going to a sanctified Baptist church or an AME or any of those, and the wooden floors would get to go moving this way. And I don't care what religion you are, man, you're just you're going like this after ten minutes because the jubilation factor is there. And I've never seen that in our horizontal. Uh, yeah, the Gothas seem to me much more um, Lutheran. <laughs> I'm gonna get in trouble for that. <laughs> there, in music, there is a certain pattern that has, has traditionally been uh, identified with religious church music. So I think if you had a musicologist look at the chord progressions, that's what we hear. And that's what we associate when we hear these particular chord progressions going in this particular line. And so sometimes when I sing these songs, the last thing I, I want us to do is sing Amen because of the way that the chord progression is going. And I think that's a whole different line of analysis when you're talking about the music in itself. In my research, I found a few articles that were from, written from the point of view of musicology, and I understood the half of them. <laughs> 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 because my, my background in music, like I said, is playing drums for a bad fucking moment. I don't know a great deal about music, but it, the feeling that I get from listening to even uh, old liturgical music, Bach music, and the Gathas, is that this rising, this reaching up to heaven, which reminds me of things I've read about different architecture between Christian churches and Buddhist temples, where egalitarianism is the most important facet for Shin Buddhist temples, and everything is on the same level. And to me, to my ear, which may not be anybody else's ear, the music that I find most disturbing, uh, it, it, I can't classify it 
as Christian or, or something else, or, or Buddhist. But I know when I feel that rise in the music, it makes me want to look up like I'm at, some, at a church where the angels are going to come from up above. And when I hear music that does not feel like that to me, it's much more accessible and much more equalized and much more level as opposed to rising. And I don't know if anybody else has experienced it like that, but that's what disturbs me when I go to a Buddhist temple and I hear this music, I'm waiting for the organ to just ascend to heaven. And, and, and it kind of disturbs the feeling that I've gotten after chanting and hearing the Dharma talk, and I find it uh, off-putting. Like, I, I, I understand what you're saying, and I think that I think we need to be. I think we should think about um, this this idea that there's the horizontal and the vertical, and that they're uh, mutually exclusive. Um, there definitely in Buddhism is a lot of horizontal, and we are all are equal. Um, but there are some aspects of Buddhism that are vertical as well. Traditionally, for example, the Nineteen is not supposed to be the same level. What's that? Shishunai is supposed to be seven. Right, but in, in Buddhism more generally, you would never have the, the Buddha image on the floor, for example. It should be okay. higher up. I understand that. <laughs> I understand that. I just, I just wonder if we can think differently about the, the different relationships that we have to our particular religious practice and open ourselves up to, the, to different possibilities of experiencing religiosity. Um, I don't think that any one particular way is right or wrong, and, and like I said, I'm an academic and certainly not a minister, so um, feel free to contradict me on <laughs> or put me in my place in all of those issues that you have Two things. Um, we attended, some of us attended the music workshop last weekend, and I think you'd be really pleased to hear some of the new music that's being, that's coming out of um, out of our sangha from Hawaii, from all over and that we had the privilege to hear a lot of this new music. And um, I'm just kind of curious, on a, another question is, how many of the temples or churches here do use the Shin Buddhist service book? There would be a raise of hands. So who uses it? The purple, the purple, the purple book. The, the pinky purple The lighter purple book. The
But when he tried to acknowledge Hodi, he's a study to Menan, he became sick. And she stayed at Hawaii Kyodan, Honganji. And he stayed at Hawaii Kyodan. He composed so many nice Buddhist children's songs. For example, Hasunohana. This is Yamada Kosak made it. So famous composer, pianist. Okay. This is the Buddhist churches of Hawaii, Kyoto, and America. Sometimes now, fourth generation, fifth generation, they don't sing a Japanese song. Sometimes please think of such a famous composer contributed, contributed so many nice gata to Hawaii Kyoto and America. Okay. But Thank but you. Um, in the Hawaii book Praises of the Buddha, they took a lot of the standard gathas like that and they've been working very hard on translations, which which then our young people can sing but with the old melodies. Mm -hmm. Yeah, they've done a lot of work. <laughs> I'm not a musician. I wish I was a musician. <laughs> <laughs> Am I out of time? Okay. Thank you all very much.